0: Hello, and
1: welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with R. Philip Dellinger, MD, MCCM. Dr. Dellinger is currently at Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. Here at Congress, Dr. Dellinger is a plenary speaker speaking on the practice of critical care, 10 things we can and must do better. Further, he also has the honor of being this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner and is being honored by the Society for his many accomplishments to the field. So we have plenty to talk about today, and I'm very excited to have you with us. And welcome, Dr. Dellinger. Thank you. I think that listeners might be interested in hearing a bit about your past and what drove your interest in critical care, and who were your mentors to get you started in this world?
0: Mike, I came from an era when there were very few critical care training programs. When I finished uh, my internal medicine and pulmonary training, uh, really hadn't thought that much about critical care, I really didn't even know much about the movement until I had my first job, which was in the Air Force, uh, at an Air Force teaching hospital, and fell in among A surgeon and another internist who had seen the light, so to speak, and were recognizing the value of having a, quote, critical care approach to patients in the ICU where there would be a, a single assigned specialist with interest and expertise in taking care of the critically ill patients that would round every day on all the patients and work with a common pool of house staff assigned to the unit. That was my first experience with critical care organization, and it was when critical care was in its infancy. We've come a long way since then, but it was the beginning of my passion for critical care. I got involved with the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I took the initiative of presenting myself to be on committees and to work with projects and over a number of years began to rise in the organization
1: structure. Great. And certainly your many contributions to the society and our patients are critically ill have been tremendous. And again, I do need to congratulate you on this great honor. What what would you say is your most memorable experience or what project professionally has given you the most pride?
0: There are two that I think are, are almost equivalent. And in in nineteen ninety two following taking care of patients in the ICU that had initially been managed either at an outlying hospital before transfer or uh, managed in the middle of the night when critical care expertise was not available prior to coming to the ICU. I noticed again and again uh, multiple missed opportunities for having made a big difference early on in the care of these patients, but critical care was just not available. Expertise was not available. I was involved with teaching ACLS and ATLS, and I said, would it be feasible to have a two-day course teaching general principles of critical care as they apply to early management of critical diagnoses by the non-critical care specialist, acute respiratory failure, hypertensive emergency, shock, etc., and could you put together a two-day course with lectures and labs and teach the non-intensivists, the ED doc, the intern is the physician, non-critical care physicians taking care of patients in the hospital? And in 1992, at the SCCM annual meeting in San Antonio, I presented the idea to Norma Shoemaker, who was the administrative director for SCCM before we had a CEO, and Russ Raffley, who was the incoming president. Russ and Norma listened to what I had to say, and they said, let's go for it. So I presented it to the governing council of SCCM, got some pushback from some people who thought we'd be given a merit badge to non-critical care physicians and a license to practice critical care. But luckily, most people did not feel that way. And in the end, I was given $10,000 for putting together a pilot program. I enlisted the help of Janice Zimmerman and Rob Taylor, who both have become very prominent over the years in the society. We put together a committee. I was the first FCCS committee chair. We put together a pilot. We taught a course to non-critical care providers. We launched an instructor course at the next annual SCCM meeting, and I think the rest is history for FCCS. Now talk to over 10,000 individuals a year in over 20 countries. That's one, and you think uh, that would be gracious plenty? Absolutely, yes. But in 2002, I think it was, we had an opportunity to get some funding, and uh, Mitchell Levy and Graham Ramsey and I, conceived the concept of the surviving sepsis campaign. We went to the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society, got their support, and the three of us designed a program that would run over three years initially, I think it was, with a phase one for just putting out the word that severe sepsis was bad, trying to get the attention of the public, the lay press, regulatory. Moving on to guidelines and then performance improvement program to decrease severe sepsis mortality worldwide. We put together a committee for the guidelines, and I think most people listening to this podcast recognize that from that 2002 time when we thought this would be a worthwhile project, like FCCS, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been tremendously successful. Internationally, with 30 sponsoring organizations like FCCS, SSC is one of the keynote products for the Society of Critical Care Medicine. So, I have two, and I would have been happy to not have any, I guess, and just have a <laughs> successful career. Uh, but I actually have two fairly landmark critical care programs that I can say that I was involved in creation.
1: Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I think many of us speak. Can be thankful for a great career helping our individual patients, but the reach of those two programs is really astounding worldwide for improvement of our critically ill and patients with sepsis. So again, a lot of a lot of folks should be thanking you. What was the catalyst? How do how do you come up with these ideas, or what what prompted you to approach the society with these types of issues?
0: Throughout my career, people that have been close to me and can be frank and honest report to me that I am clearly an idea person. I'm not a detailed person. Mm-hmm. I have uh, surrounded myself with detailed people, which I need. As far as the ideas, I probably have a, a sense of observation and ability to link observation to programmatic thought. And
1: why the notion, I think you alluded to this in your plenary, but for the listeners who perhaps didn't make it to your plenary, why the notion of a campaign for sepsis?
0: The, the reason the campaign was attached was that it would be a campaign to bring attention to the importance of severe sepsis, the morbidity, and the mortality, and a campaign to get healthcare practitioners and hospital administrations interested in investing resources and support for doing better in the management of sepsis. Mm-hmm. And it's a catchy name. Yes, You can say, sure. now we can say the campaign and just put a, a capital C on right. it, and, and we Never don't have to say what anything about, huh? else, correct, unless it's November or October. <laughs> That's right.
1: Perhaps we should take a step back, and if you can give us, especially, I guess, for those who haven't, aren't, aren't in Congress or weren't able to make your plenary, it was certainly a wonderful talk Is the 10 things that you focused on, all, all the things that you've both been integral in improving, but also the things
0: that you stated many times, we must do better. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, Mike. I was trying to put some relevancy to me getting the Lifetime Achievement Award with coming up with a list of 10 things that we must do better. I wanted to tell a little bit about my career and some of the highlights and looking for ways to do both. As you heard in my lecture, I've done the 10 theme before, sort of the David Letterman 10 things, Mm -hmm. sort of did it this time. The 10 things that uh, I actually started out with about 20. (laughs) Some of those 20 uh, came from solicitation to friends and colleagues, Uh, you know, you got anything that you would like to put on my initial list? (laughs) And and in the end, I honed it down to 10 uh, areas where we can and must do better electronic medical records, patient safety, ICU rounds, ICU physical exams, aligning critical care research with health care changes, pre-ICU care, decreasing post intensive care syndrome, in severe sepsis care, our communication with patients, and compassion. And I, I gave them, I just gave them to you in the order, I actually did them, they originally had no order, and when I put them in order, I wanted to start out with something that would be an attention grabber. So I put perhaps my most entertaining but still legitimate area where we can do better. And I finished with the two that I felt would elicit the most emotional gut reaction from the audience, which was a communication with patients and compassion
1: in health care. You made an interesting comment when you were talking about compassion that you yourself kind of made a conscious decision to focus on compassion. And you've seen benefit not only in your patients, but in yourself as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And for folks who are thinking, well, how do do, do you actually go about doing that? What,
0: What did you do? I would classify myself as sort of middle of the road, average compassion guy for most of my career. I think most intensive care physicians do exhibit compassion. It just may not be on the top of their list most days. About five years ago, I think I was having a conversation with a friend who I admire and who always encourages me to do better. And I realized that you can be proactive in becoming more compassionate. And I think what you have to do, and I'll use two examples, if you just go in to your patient, or if your patient is not capable of interaction, a family member, and sit down at the bedside or with the family member to say anything at all. And unless there's some type of signal that it's something you shouldn't do, to hold the hand while you're talking to them. It becomes easier the more you do it. I think the overwhelming majority of patients and families really appreciate you doing that. Certainly on some types of isolation you couldn't, uh, but otherwise you could. And as you begin to do it more and more, you, rec- you realize that it makes the patient or the family member feel special or better. But you recognize it also makes you feel better. It makes you feel like you're, you're doing something. You're, you're making a difference uh, mm-hmm. in something other than getting the blood pressure up or getting a patient's oxygenation up. The other thing is conversation with a patient, if that's possible, or with a family member that's totally unrelated to healthcare. Are you from the area? You know, just you—you the the TV's on. Or are you watching the Eagles game tonight? Mm-hmm. You know, just try to establish a minute or two of conversation that's more about the person and the family and not about the disease Mm -hmm. that you're treating really makes a difference. And, you know, you usually don't have time to dedicate large blocks of commitment to something like that, but it doesn't take long and it, it does make you feel better. The uh, Dalai Lama quote in my lecture, and I don't remember the specifics, but the implication was that compassion is good for the patient and it's good for the practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting when they, you know the I remember.
1: Mentor, mentor from a while back was talking about burnout issues and not just ICU but in healthcare in general and people with the idea that well if you get too close if you get too emotionally involved it's you know, that, that's what leads to burnout and he said no it's actually quite the opposite in my view it's the folks that don't get close enough who have burnout so that human connection does seem to be important. Moving on, I said, perhaps we can talk about the future. Again, you've been a visionary for many aspects of critical care. What is the future looking like for the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, for instance, and, and other new treatments, therapies, or approaches to managing folks with critical illness?
0: I think the the things that are coming down the pike for the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, there is another revision of the guidelines that's just beginning. Anticipation is that uh, it would be out the end of 2016 which means it'll probably be the middle of 2017 or the end of 2017, (laughs) based on my experience with the three previous renditions of the guidelines. We certainly, uh, a priority is to redo the hemodynamic recommendations in light of the process trial and the ARISE trial and the promise trial that's coming out in the not-too-distant future. Clearly, there will be changes. CVP and SCVO2 will not be mandated. At the same time, you can't tell residents to do whatever they want to do to resuscitate patients with septic shock, for example. So clearly, it can't be do whatever you want. Right. But what's in between do whatever you want and the previous early goal-directed therapy recommendations is is yet to be determined. The current status of the National Quality Forum indicators is moving toward a menu, a menu that would assure that there is documentation that following initial fluid bolus and vasopressors if needed to get an adequate mean arterial pressure that there is a revisit to the bedside by a physician or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant and clear-cut chart documentation of an assessment of tissue hypoperfusion and intravascular volume status to make sure that that happens because I think everyone agrees that's important. And that menu may include things like focus, physical exam, cardiovascular ultrasound, such as IVC or cardiac itself or Doppler, passive leg raising and effect on flow or CVP or SCVO2, uh, but as part of a larger menu of items. And these would, in order to satisfy the quality indicator, there would have to be documentation that these were done. It makes sense. Yeah, I I hear a lot of people groaning (laughs) right now
1: whenever the word documentation is mentioned. What what are your thoughts about, uh, well, a couple of different, I guess, thoughts (laughs) there. Or perhaps maybe it's even easier to speak about what the care of sepsis looks like in your shop. What what, what do you feel is
0: best practice? Do you have a
1: protocol bundle or is it more individualized?
0: I think like most academic medical centers, we started out with, Fairly strict protocols and a lot of chart combing and a lot of uh, immediate feedback and a lot of people that were running herd on how we were treating septic shock, for example. Over time, once that's been in place for three or four years, it sort of becomes status quo and it's passed down in lectures to house staff and fellows. Uh, But I would think that both me and my colleagues tend to aggressively fluid resuscitate with at least 30 mLs per kg initially, usually more. Of crystalloid, there's been a significant change in preference for lactated ringers over normal saline, a mentality of early antibiotics by nurses, physicians in training and attendings, and early identification because of lectures and case presentations for both the ED and the ICU. I think the hospital floors is an area that we're currently working on, and that's another surviving sepsis campaign project. We're collaborating with the Society of Hospital Medicine, and we have over 60 hospitals in collaboratives across the U.S. where we have a hospitalist and nurses on hospital floors uh, that are putting together a early identification, early treatment program. There are not as many of these patients on the hospital floors, but they tend to do worse. And it's likely worthwhile to have some system in place for early identification. Mm-hmm. Are there other areas or experiences that you'd like to share? Anything else you want to... Uh, I would, Mike. I. Uh, you know, in my uh, plenary, I talked about electronic medical record mm-hmm. documentation. And I don't think there's another area where there's such uniform agreement among critical care academic physicians that it's such a sorry state with our EMR physicians' progress notes. Everyone recognizes it's a big problem. The notes tend to be written sometimes over almost an entire day, piecemeal. It's hard to tell when a particular part of that note flowed in. We pull way more information from laboratory and other avenues to stream stuff in the note. The note gets bigger and bigger as the patient stays. There's copy and pasting at many hospitals by quite a few people that is not properly edited and they're, they're not as meaningful as notes 15 years ago when you just wrote down what you thought was important at the time for people right. that might be reading the note. Now part of this is not EMR. Part of it is attestation requirement for CMS. Uh, but to a large there, there are a lot of EMR problems and we do need to figure out some way to make this uh, problem better. In my talk, I related a story that I think really hits the nail on the head. It's from an article called John Lennon's Elbow by Dr. Hursty, published in JAMA as an opinion piece in which uh, he relates a story of the Beatles performing at Shea Stadium in 1967 before a huge, raucous crowd, and the noise was so loud that it became that no one could hear the music being played, including the Beatles as they were performing it. Uh, John Lennon started stroking his organ with his elbow instead of playing it with his fingers, and nobody noticed because you couldn't tell any change in the music, and Dr. Hurstick compares that to our current EMR progress notes. Says E.M.R. Parker's notes are like music from John Lennon's elbow. They are awful, and nobody seems to mind. But I think we do need to start doing something because I I think you can't leave a intolerable situation intact. So what is the uh, what's the solution? You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I was thinking about this when you when you try to get ten points, <laughs> you, you're going to say ten things we must do better and you've got 40 minutes to deliver your talk, and you're trying to figure out, how do I do 10 things? And then you say, well, you know, my talk wasn't entitled uh, 10 Things We Must Do Better, and here's how we're going to do right. it. <laughs>
1: fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll ask the listeners to improve our EMR systems. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and again, congratulations. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein.
2: Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.